day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. At time of record, we're heading to the end of August. The start of spring is just around the corner and a very busy month coming up as well. And the health of the sinuses and the hay fever ain't going to be helping either. Today is the long edit version you'll be hearing of a chat that's been doing the rounds with a very talented guest indeed. Sadly, the line for which we were joined via Skype was not as kind or as talented. But that said, here is our feature guest for today. Misty River, debut album of original music, is called Promises, and recently a new standalone, for now, single called The Long Run. Though for Carmen Phelan, who fronts Misty River, releasing their own music is something relatively new after spending many years being a session musician for some highly respected artists and touring with the likes of Sinead O'Connor, The Cause and many others. Notably, one of their first demos appears as was first recorded in an Oscar-winning film, The Phone Call, as well on a recent award-winning Netflix documentary, A Secret Love. On the line from the UK... Carmen from Misty River. Huge radio notes. Welcome to Misty River's Carmen Phelan. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Fiddle at the age of eight or nine years of age. Was that your choice or was that part of a family tradition to play such instruments? It's a funny one. My parents loved music and um, I'd actually, I think like a lot of kids started off on the recorder (laughs) and um, strangely enough showed enough of an aptitude for that, that I was sort of given a lot of money and encouragement. Um, At the time, they were encouraging kids with a talent for music. So I actually got to a very, very high standard as a Baroque recorder player (laughs) um, as a very young child. And I think my parents just sort of figured maybe there wasn't that much longevity in (laughs) being a Baroque recorder player. Are we talking about like more the ten? We're not talking the descant. We're talking about like the tenor recorder, aren't we? Alto was my speciality, the sort of middle one. It's beautiful. I mean, obviously that we had before the flute, so a lot of the repertoire is in that sort of domain. Um, and yeah, I think I think they just sort of figured maybe I should branch out. So that's that's when I started playing fiddle, and I sort of didn't really look back. With that said, I did have to have a lot of help and encouragement, and I definitely remember trying to quit playing music in return for horse riding lessons, and that wasn't allowed. <laughs> Can you talk to us, Carmen, about this heritage, I believe, where you've got the Irish music background, but you've also got this bluegrass leaning into alt country type music? Just one of those funny things about how life falls. So my father's from Dublin and I think pretty much everybody in Dublin is involved in some form of music. Everybody certainly from his generation sings and sort of telling stories and passing stories down. So that sort of folk tradition um, was a very strong part of my Irish family. And at that point, my father didn't play, but a lot of my relatives were players. And then we moved to the States. And as I just started playing the violin at that point, which is classical violin, I was given a teacher from Virginia, from the Appalachians, who was a bluegrass fiddle teacher. So that's sort of how that came about. It was a, a very early sort of introduction from already playing a bit of Irish music straight away into old times sort of country tunes and so that's some of the earliest things that I've played and I think for me I've always had 
sort of three traditions running at once through my music, I suppose, which is the classical tradition, which I guess we'll come back to in a bit, mm. um, the Irish one from my sort of family, um, and then the bluegrass one just purely because that's where I lived and those are the musicians that I was around. And again, I was sort of very welcomed into that community. So for me, it's always been, they've never been these sort of disparate, separate elements, but they've always been really complementary classical what was that journey through I guess the teenage years maybe through the early 20s of classical music you know it's a it's a funny one it's only looking back now um I had always played in bands and I'd always enjoyed that but I think what I loved what I love about playing in a band is what I loved about being a classical musician is playing in an orchestra with 120 other musicians I think for me it was a sensory sort of thing of just being surrounded by this incredible sound world and I love playing with other musicians and I, I think looking back I'm not sure whether really it was so much about being a classical musician as just sort of enjoying that experience and I certainly when I got to I worked really hard to get to music school which is very competitive and when I got there I just felt like I just felt a little bit like a fish out of water it didn't feel there's a lot of sort of practicing on your own for six hours a day and mm-hmm. it's quite competitive and it felt a world away from everything that I had really learned to love about music and obviously it's a different journey for everybody but I think sometimes for a lot of people that I know if you have an aptitude for something you can end up doing that thing without really giving you an opportunity or chance to look back and say actually am I really loving this is this exactly the right thing for me just because I did it and it comes easily in in that sense being a sort of full-time classical musician that just wasn't it wasn't the right fit but comes in other ways I still really enjoy recording sort of string sections and parts and, and that that side of things but it's definitely gone more into the studio and definitely is the sort of playing live and the bands playing with other musicians and touring with other bands and then on my own I certainly don't spend a lot of time but one thing I would say is I think the sort of um, tradition of the classical music and how you approach arrangements just think about the whole sort of sound world I think probably again is a fairly big influence in some in some of my tracks. When you're describing your place within an orchestra, I felt like it was a sense of connection with what you're achieving live. Yeah, and it is that thing of somebody asked me recently, why did I call it Misty River? Because I'm the sole songwriter, or at least write most of the songs. And and it was to do with the fact that within the band as well, I just recognised that it takes a lot of other people giving so much of themselves, and what you end up in the end is there something sort of much better than you would have sort of had, I suppose, you know. And I think in an orchestra, it's that, you know, it's amazing to be able to play the violin, but to be able to play around 60 other violinists and all the other instruments too is just, it's an incredible feeling. And it's a similar feeling when you write a song and then you get to play it with the band or record it. And it's just everything that you imagined in your mind and all your ideas come to life. And that is, that's a phenomenal thing. The name Misty River does come from a childhood memory. Um, it was actually a music camp I went on years ago um, called Misty River. And it was just a really happy place. And it's sort of where I go back to the first time just thinking that's, you know, that I just want to be a musician. This is just what I want to do, if that's possible, because <laughs> I didn't know how possible it was to do that. And then coupled with the fact that my family sort of often joked and called me Misty because I'd tear up quite easily at any sad story or anything happy or any of that kind of stuff. So it just felt like that's the right thing to call this. (laughs) 
It brings us to the theme of the current at the time, the current single, the long run. And it is about that coming back to, I believe in this case, a relationship or someone you really care about and you want to make work. I don't think it's about faith exactly. It's it's almost about just saying sometimes it's just really, really hard. And we have these preconceived ideas and relationships of what everybody should bring to the table. And if you don't get out, you know, exactly what it says on the tin, then you should run and, and leave it behind. And as time's gone on a little bit, it's just this thinking of sometimes when you're really rooted in something, it takes a bit longer. Um, it takes a bit longer to get there in the end. And maybe you don't have all the answers. You may not know what it is exactly that's needed to get there sort of in the long run, essentially. But something keeps you going. Underlying thing with long run is really saying, you know, maybe it won't be okay, but we'll just keep going anyway because hopefully it will be worth it. And I, you know, I do think it's it's worth sticking in there. And I suppose that is often a theme in my songs is is to do with resilience, whether it's to do with sort of believing in yourself and um, long run is to do with obviously believing in a relationship. And I suppose it was based on conversations I'd had with some friends who were struggling in some of their relationships and, you know, my own knowledge a bit about how that can work, that you just you really wonder sometimes how you're sticking in there and why. But in my experience, it's often worth worth doing. You know, I'm a really big believer in, um, I think that we can be very idealistic about things. And sometimes that can actually serve as our downfall a little bit, I think, because you're so idealistic about things that it stops you looking at what you've really got, which might be something really, really good. And maybe it's a little bit, and again, you know, I'm definitely a person that does this sometimes. I think we all do, but you know, it's that sort of imagining the grass is greener, that there's always something better somewhere else to to run away to. And I think we've all got that sort of feeling of just wanting to bolt sometimes when when the going gets tough. And I, I think it was just sort of recognizing that, that actually hang on to those special moments because they really do mean something and it really is worth, worth working on things sometimes. You've had the chance to tour with some pretty big names over the time. I have been appreciating your voice for a long time, but to see you as a trio with another singer and some singer called Sinead O'Connor live in front of hundreds of thousands of people (laughs) really struck me as I'm right. This is acapella. This is like one of the greatest singer songwriters of all time. Talk to us about the touring experience with Sinead O'Connor as both I guess the violin, fiddle and backing vocalist That's right, exactly I had always done uh, backing vocals and I think that definitely touring with Sinead brought the vocals for me a bit more to the front as you're saying, sort of doing that acapella work and obviously she is a phenomenal singer um, and so distinct so I think I learned just so much, it was sort of like you're just instantly inducted into this new world and I thought it was just very interesting with Sinead how every night was different in terms of it wasn't a sort of stayed rehearsed performance in that way, but it was very much visceral and real and reacting to the audience and how she felt. And that, that was really interesting for me because I think despite her technical ability, what really sort of shone out was just the originality and the visceral sort of just the wanting to communicate and connect and that relationship with the audience and I suppose you know it's taken me a long time to 
think about myself as a singer because I was an instrumentalist for such a long time. I think maybe that gave me a bit of confidence as a singer because I think what I thought was it's not about being the best singer in the world because it's more about how do I communicate this to you as the audience and and take on, in fact, your feedback or, you know, what, what I don't think there's a name, but somebody should have a word for what's created, I guess, between an audience and the musician, whatever that space is held between you and in a concert or at a gig. But that's really what matters rather than you being, you know, the best singer in the world, I guess. And I find that kind of interesting. So I suppose that gave me a little bit of confidence, funnily enough, even though I was with one of the best singers in the world. <laughs> I don't think that was the most important thing with her. I think the most important thing was how much of herself she gave and how much people took away from that. I believe that was exemplified by the footage I saw of her putting her arm out and inviting you into that third vocal part as well. She just seems to be a very inviting person in that way. Moving from that, as part of a question I have regarding the Promises album, her MD and more throughout life, uh, John Reynolds appears on some of the drumming. Which tracks do we need to have a listen out for John Reynolds' work? Well, he's on a few. He's on Take This Dance, um, which is on the first album. He's on Wishing on the Wrong Star as well. Um, I think those are the two main ones. And he also mixed Take This Dance, but he's been very encouraging over the years. Um, and we've worked together on several other projects. So, yeah, again, it was just a real compliment and a wonderful thing to have a friend and collaborator come in and work um, in that capacity. Again, sort of with my first release. Um, so I hadn't released, you know, this mini album has been the first thing I've ever put out ever and <laughs> um, I haven't changed names or tried another guys so it, it's you know it's been tremendous for me really to see how it's been received and and to have yeah so many sort of wonderful musicians come in and get involved with it because the other drummer and this is what I'm getting to so that's one of the drummers great but the other drummer is something to do with Brandy Carlisle yeah Chris Powell is a phenomenal drummer he works with Brandy he works with a load of people with Chris Stapleton and a lot with a producer called Dave Cobb. You know, if you like Americana and country, then you've definitely heard Chris across quite a few of those records. And this was a, a really interesting one for me. So Adam, who produced the record, he also, he just loves Chris's drumming. And during lockdown, when everything felt like it was falling away and touring was falling away and yeah, I mean, we were locked down. And obviously for some musicians, that, that was quite a, productive time because you could at least be in the studio it didn't work out that way for everybody but during a discussion we just sort of said well hey people aren't touring who would be the dream team <laughs> for the record and that was the name that came up and we really just approached him and just sort of said look this is an independent project we understand that you don't do a lot of that but have a listen what do you think and he just immediately came back and said he'd love to be involved and he's pretty much I'm working really hard now on the next release and Chris is playing on pretty much all of that. The, the vibe is just so good and so right. And it's just, again, it's an amazing thing. The person who is sort of you here playing in your living room all the time when you wake up in the morning and you're listening to your records to get to have the chance to, and, you know, for him to have made it possible for me as an independent musician to, to play on it, you know, knowing that it's not going through a label at this point. I think that's another interesting thing about musicians, just supporting other musicians in ways that they can. So I love Chris and very, yeah, tremendously grateful for his support and him being involved because he's, 
is the real deal. That must give you that sense of confidence that you both know each other musically well enough. You can go a little bit further. What's happening with the second record, I guess, compared to Promises because of that working relationship? I think, yeah. So I think the first record for me, I often feel like it's a little bit like um, setting out your shop. You know, you have all of these things that you want to do and that you can do. Mm. And you sort of, I feel like with that first record, there was some experimenting there in the different kind of um, types of writing that I wanted to do and the different styles. And I think, and, you know, there were there were lots of other people involved. And it's funny because now with Long Run, which will definitely be on the new record, I just feel like, I, as you said, I've got a sort of confidence, but also I just feel like I'm a little bit more seated in myself because having grown up around a lot of bluegrass and country, I didn't feel completely confident that said that people would be happy to accept that from me in a way. And and it's been really interesting for me that it's been the opposite, how welcoming people have been. So I think that also sort of gives me the confidence to say, oh, actually, it's totally fine. I can do, you know, an Americana or a country record. And I feel a bit validated in that respect. So I feel like with this new record, it's a lot more confident and, you know, much more sort of exactly what I like and what I like to listen to. And, you know, I suppose has influences from the people that, played a big, a big part in who I've sort of turned into, I suppose, as a writer and a musician. What was that transformation like, becoming a singer-songwriter, in just the last couple of years, I believe? Terrifying. <laughs> of course. Um, it's funny, though. I think, I think I didn't do it before also because I'm not sure I had that I felt like I had so much to say. And I just reached a point in my life where I was like, hang on a minute, I have all these songs just coming into my head all the time. And I just, I want to get them out there. So I felt like I didn't have a lot of, a lot of choice, but yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a process. I have to admit, you know, you definitely the first few times out there have that bit of sort of imposter syndrome of thinking, is this, is this okay? Is this, is this valid? Should I do some cover tunes or something? <laughs> um, and but again, I mean, it just comes back to the, that little bit of sort of the more radio support you get or, you know, the gigs you get offered, positive feedback that you get from people that just little by little. Because it does, I think when you swap in the way that I have, I do feel like I'm starting from scratch in that regard because I hadn't written before. I hadn't sung before, you know, at the front. You know, I hadn't done, I'm not a singer that was doing wedding bands or, you know, I hadn't done any of that stuff. I'd always sung um, a lot, but just not in that capacity I take a little bit of time definitely you know I'm the sort of person I am really really influenced by other people so had there been a lot of sort of negative <laughs> feedback that probably would have been it realistically and in fact I noticed on the long run um particularly on social media where you can get some really strange comments I noticed the only sort of proper troll comment this time was about my hair and in fairness I hadn't actually brushed it when I posted a video so <laughs> I felt like I got off lightly there. When you were being interviewed by Prompt Queen, you said that co-writing is a new space for you and that the mentor said coffee first, then that gives you the space to work with. Can you talk to me about the co-writing experience and what that's doing for you? Sure. So, I mean, that's, again, that's something that's super new to me. And um, I think it's funny. I think that... um, I, I had a bit of a prejudice or a bias against it because I just thought, you know, um, when you see 20 names on a song, I just had an instant sort of recoil of just thinking, no, you want to see one or two names on a song. You want to know who it came from. And 
that was a bit silly actually because back to that sort of collaborative thing like I've really come to realize a good co-writer brings out the best in you <laughs> and takes you into some place ever so slightly different and challenges you but it shouldn't be a sort of an unpleasant or a negative challenge and, and I think that's what that comes back to has to be sort of a good personality match I don't think necessarily a personality match as in you have to be best friends but obviously a musical match and that you have to be talking the same language and they have to have a song or something that you you know I, I think for me the measure of it is you know are you a really nice person and have you written a song that I really wish I'd written and then normally that's a pretty good starting point for a co-writing session. Has that made it easier the fact that uh, the long run is co-written by someone that you I would think trust in their musical views and other views of life? Yeah absolutely it it, it does and um and I think I, I've slightly learned the hard way. My first few co-writes weren't in that space because other people had arranged them. So I think having a bit more agency in sort of terms of reaching out to people or asking my managers to reach out to people and say, this is how, who I'd like to work with because they sort of, they seem like they're the right vibe. But I mean, Adam and I have worked together four years and I just think I, it's, it's also, there's a sense of relief because I think sometimes when you're a writer, things come very, very quickly to you, often with me, most of the song is there within five or 10 minutes. You know, it's not always, but a lot of the time, you know, the songs you, I really trust and are the quick delivery ones. And and then you get to a point where you're saying, I just, I don't know where to take this now because I sort of, everything tumbled out really fast mm. and <laughs> I'm not sure what to do. And that's an amazing thing to have a co-writer then, to have somebody who says, you know, actually, I've got a really good idea for that. That's what I love about that. And also I think, there's also the niggling thing in the back of your mind quite often where you're thinking, mm, I'm not sure if that lyric, if I've expressed myself very clearly or I'm just not quite sure that chord sequence is quite right. And you sort of, <laughs> you leave it and then somebody else comes along and raises that with you and you think, oh, actually, I do need to change that or I haven't been clear. It's not completely clear what I'm talking about. So I think there's loads of different facets to that, working that way around in terms of sort of having someone come in and edit and expand on what you've done but also a really nice thing is sometimes someone will bring you a groove or an idea or a vibe and that's a really nice jumping off point as well so that's I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the new record. We're currently speaking to Carmen Phelan who is part of Misty River the latest single is called The Long Run and that's a co-write with Adam, but I, I got very excited because doing my research, I found out that you actually did backing vocals on a fave tune of mine, but more importantly, part of doing the violin of a song that was written in the studio, or so says Kate Sobrano. Let's talk about Champion. How did that come about? Yes. So, um, it's funny because I'm not a very business-like musician, Sometimes I wish I were more so, but nearly everything that I've done has come about by chance. And that was really a game by chance. It was her producer, songwriter at the time, a Canadian writer called James Bryan was living in London and his studio was opposite mine. And again, you know, it comes back to that sort of just getting on with people, having coffee. James had heard a lot of the Sinead stuff, I think, at the time and you know, we were just friends really. And he was just listening to what I was working on in the studio. And then one day he just sort of said, look, I just have the perfect match for you. <laughs> you know, come and try it out. So a time and a place and a friendship and coffee that often seems to be how things how things work out. And it's a really cool track. Yeah. 
I love doing that. And I think that was probably, yeah, maybe fairly early on when I started doing backing vocals, sort of recorded backing vocals for people as opposed to just strings. I love that. I love the vibe of that whole, that whole record. You've said of Casey Chambers that she's your favourite. I think I know why, but why are you such a big fan of Casey Chambers? I actually remember precisely the first time I heard Casey Chambers singing was in a local World Cafe bar near me. It was owned by a radio DJ, so they used to always put the record or the CD up on the wall so you could see what was playing. And they used to always, it was a nice thing, they'd play the whole album. I think I was just really taken with with her voice and with the delivery. And I think a lot of the things that we've discussed, just her beautiful voice, yeah. And how uh, truthful, I guess, uh, she was in her songwriting. Yeah, a, bit, a, bit, a big part of it. What's some of the new themes that you're picking up on now that you've got that confidence as a songwriter? I think it's, it's, it's funny. I'm quite keen, um, you know, the music that I sort of, I think I was saying to you sort of the Irish tradition that I'm from is very much about storytelling and you know so beyond stories about romantic relationships I think I just find that covered a lot it's been done a lot people have said a lot about that almost everything that could be said and I just love um I just love stories about people's lives and the songwriters that I sort of grew up loving listening to like John Prine and, and people like that I, I love those kind of stories. So I think it's this next record is looking a bit at my own life and that of my family and friends and just talking about those natural journeys of life that people go through, I suppose. And I'm quite excited about that because when you start thinking about that, there's an awful lot to say, actually. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the sort of writers that I really love now, like Laurie McKenna and people like that, that is very much that sort of journeying through life. I love those stories. And I, I think when I started listening to sort of my route into sort of more traditional country music, I suppose, was when I was in music school and somebody sent me the Dixie Chicks record, I guess, because of the fiddle side of things and songs on that, like Travelling Soldier. And, you know, I was just like, this is amazing. You go on a complete journey and you feel completely sort of nostalgic. Or you feel like you went through it by the end of that song. And I think definitely sort of country Americana, bluegrass, Irish tribe, they all hold that space for you to have the time to sort of take people on that journey with you. And I never make up a, a song <laughs> in that respect. It's normally something I've been mulling over for a long time and maybe something I didn't say, a letter, I don't know. But I, I feel like if I was, if I hadn't become a musician, I have a master's degree in psychology as well. I, I love stories, I love people's stories. And that's probably why for me, really being a songwriter, it feels like the perfect sort of landing spot because it's thinking about other people and how we all fit together and how our stories fit together and how they evolve. I think that's going to be the next record. Can we take a track from the debut album, Promises? The song I want to talk about is like Wishing it. on the Wrong Star. Is that about someone now close in your life? Yes. Um so yeah, Wishing on the Wrong Star, I suppose. Um, it's probably the most nostalgic one on the on the record. And actually, in reality, it's, it's looking back over a couple of relationships. And definitely, you know, there's a line in there about my husband now, 
because I knew him when I was really young mm. and when we were when we were in our sort of early 20s hanging around and he would come around to my sort of family house and bring all his friends around when my family had when my parents had gone away you know we'd party in their house but I remember it was there's a line that I suppose is a bit obscure but it's to do with the fact that I was trying to show off I, I was a bit younger they were in their 20s and I was sort of late teens and um and my father had all his spirits hidden away so I got them all I got all the spirits out and obviously because you're a stupid teenager I just served them up all to these you know all, all these guys partying and um and you know it was all with mixes and it was at the end of the night somebody said you know what this doesn't taste very alcoholic but actually my dad had drunk the spirits and then I think in an effort to let my mum know he hadn't done that he'd filled them up with water so she, it looked like he hadn't <laughs> hadn't had the whiskey <laughs> and and then I not knowing you know really much about alcohol had just served that up so I you know in my showing off I just served up a bunch of water instead of whiskey so that was kind of one of those lines just for my husband was sort of drinking water from a whiskey bottle was just you know was kind of related to that so as I say sometimes it's an overlapping of a few different stories but and again I think maybe not a million miles away I haven't thought about this but from long run actually of just sometimes looking in the wrong place when have what you need quite close by. <laughs> Which is interesting because you say you have a psychology degree and, and a lot of that has to do about placing thoughts and where they go. So without the degree, you may not have had these songs at all. They may not be there, but I think it's funny, you know, I just think that's part of my personality. Like I'm somebody that I, I'm, you know, a lot of my friends would say I'm a very private person. I'm not in my songwriting. I kind of put everything out there that you know, it takes a while for me to share things with people. But that said, I'm really interested in people. When I meet people, I tend to ask a lot of questions. So sometimes I really get caught out. I could be sort of hours talking to somebody that I've only just met because I am genuinely interested in how people came to be where they're at and what they thought about something. And sometimes I wonder if it's if they're slightly inappropriate questions that I ask, but people have always told me things. So I think it wasn't too inappropriate. And, you know, I, I am, I'm really interested in people. I really am. I think as well, you know, thinking sometimes we think, we think that we, we have a feeling or a thinking a certain way. But what's sort of driving that interest? And is that really how we're going to end up in the end? You know, will we feel the same way in six months down the line or a year down the line? So, yeah, I mean, I still read a lot of, sort of listen to a lot of psychology stuff and read a lot of, I can imagine in my old age, I'd like to, I'd like to go back to that at some point. <laughs> you've said once that you've known your husband, Adam's family since you were a kid, which makes me think you might've known the family before you knew him. When, when I moved back from the States as a kid, um, I felt very out of place in my new school. And one of the kids really took me under her wing and and in fact, um, made sure we were friends. I think I wasn't as keen in the beginning, I'm not ashamed to say, but she sort of pushed it through and rang me and came around, which is sometimes what most of my good friends need to do with me. <laughs> That's Adam's younger sister. <laughs> so I've been best friends with her since we were 10 or 11. But Adam, you know, was just sort of always there. He's a few years older, so he was at college. Or Teenagers don't really want to hang around with 11-year-olds. So we didn't really come to know each other till much later but I certainly grew up around 
his family and his sister around mimes. It's a very unusual thing, I suppose. The thing we used to joke about was that, you know, we used to joke that she would marry my brother, but in the end I married her brother. We got what we wanted was we got to be sisters, which was, <laughs> which was the main thing. I, I will just mention his sister as well. She's an amazing person and she, she works in charity. She's sort of very prominent over here at the moment. She's leading the appeal for Ukraine, but she's also the, probably the best singer I've ever met in my life. She doesn't do it professionally in any capacity. I bullied her into singing on the record at the last minute. And again, something that would not have been possible pre-lockdown because I don't think we'd have ever found the time. She wouldn't have been able to. But I was in the studio and just sort of called her and said, have you got an hour? So Wishing on the Wrong Star is one of the ones and Walk Me to the River that I've called his sister in. So it's a bit of a family affair. Speaking of good singers, back to people that you've mentioned recently and then I'll move through. Not to get confused with Vance Joy, but Foy Vance. When were you first introduced to Foy Vance? Because I get a feeling you were an early adopter of their music. And what struck you about Foy Vance? Not to get confused with Vance Joy. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just a big fan of Foy's actually, really. Um, I, don't, I don't know him so well. He just, he was opening for some gigs that we were doing. Again, it was just, you know, it's an interesting thing, I think, with certain songwriters when you can see that they can command a whole room just on just them and a guitar and he very much sort of just has whatever that thing is of he really just took the audience on a journey and everybody was just sort of enraptured I'm definitely a fangirl in that in that respect as opposed to someone that I know very well but I think he maybe I'm trying to think maybe he was opening for Sinead I think that could have been the case yeah who do you want supporting you or maybe who do you want to support when you tour the Promises album and maybe the next album in full? When you get that chance to really hit the road, like travel throughout America quite extensively or through the UK quite extensively? In terms of, you know, like the ones that you'll I'll never get, the dreams sort of people that I love to support would be people like, you know, I love Chris Stapleton's band. And again, I suppose it's another family band <laughs> I listen to a lot of his wife's singing actually I mean obviously they're amazing together but I just feel like that would be a really really fun gig to do because it'd be a cool crowd and yeah or yeah I mean anybody sort of along those lines and in terms of who would support me I'm not I'm not too sure really I suppose because that that's a funny one I mean I do feel like some people have started to bring me along on their journeys and I really, I've really appreciated it. So I suppose if I was in a position to be bringing along a support act, you know, I'd just be looking for someone based purely on merit, I guess. I wouldn't care about their social numbers or mm -hmm. any of what they've done or who they've played with. Because I do, I do think that, you know, the, the chances that I've gotten working with Kate or with Sinead or, you know, um, having the sort of songs in the films and that sort of thing, it's all come about by people just... Not exactly by chance, because obviously you're roughly in the same area as those people, but friendly connections and people who like you and just give you a chance, actually, because maybe you don't have all the same credentials as somebody else. You know, I, I suppose that's always happened for me. And um, so that's, I suppose, you know, what I'd be hoping for is to just give somebody else a leg up and a chance. That's a lovely thing about music, because you can do that. And I've certainly benefited from that so I'd hope to be able to do the same for a new act for sure 
I know that you've been enjoying an album for which I was quite obsessed with when it came out. And thanks to you, I re-listened to it and went, I know why I really like this album. Can you talk to me about your thoughts, not my thoughts, they don't matter, your thoughts <laughs> on the album Outside by Alison Russell? Impactful. <laughs> um, it, that's an interesting one, yeah, because... I've, I've followed her other, her band with her husband, Birds of Chicago, anyway, for a long time. And there's just something else in that album, isn't there? There's just some other force. I don't know how to explain it, really. It's just, you know, it's that beautiful um, bringing together, I guess, of, you know, poetry, I suppose, in a way. Um, and beautiful, beautiful arrangements. And obviously, I think the unusual that she's managed to put such um, difficult things and still make them so beautiful. I think that's quite a challenge, isn't it? To to write something so hard for people, but make it accessible and listenable and, you know, and to bring other people in. So, yeah, she's a phenomenal, she's a phenomenal talent. And I, I think um, I was just in Kansas City at, at Folk Alliance and they had the Folk Awards. She won an award there and... I think one thing that sort of really came across is she'd been part of that folk community for really a long time. So I'm just so pleased for her as a musician and as a woman that, you know, that she's found that sort of space to really flourish and found that support really to be herself and um, completely herself. I, I suppose there's a great validation in that to write such a sort of vulnerable and beautiful piece of work. A demo of Take This Dance was so good that it was featured in The Phone Call that won the best live action short at the 87th Oscars. And uh, more recently was the tune featured in a very topical and award-winning Netflix documentary, A Secret Love, which I think was Chris Nolan's effort, a story of Terry and Pat 65-plus years together. The short I saw trying to get into a nursing home and such the, the passion of like, well, you better accept us for who we are because we've been here a while, six decades. Yeah. <laughs> How did it end up on this this documentary? I'm very cynical and I totally think these things never happen. Um, <laughs> but this really was just that he was making the film and he'd come across, he came across Take the Stance. And the really weird thing about it was, um, I assumed he would have heard it from the other film or somewhere else like that, but he hadn't. He had just been searching through the internet for something that he felt like was going to be the perfect match to the story of their, his relatives. And um, and so he got the music supervisor to, to reach out. And so that's sort of interesting too for me. So the version of Take This Dance that's in A Secret Love is the fully produced one with John Reynolds, who we mentioned earlier, who's, mm -hmm. who's produced that and... Uh, played drums on it and then the one from the other film is a demo so that was fascinating for me it's two ever so slightly different takes on the same song um, and I was delighted but interesting for me that you know that the themes that I'm interested in seem to match up to a secret love as I was saying it is it's the story of it's a love story over 65 years and a story of sort of resilience and acceptance <laughs> actually the phone call is exactly the same theme it's a love story so it was really interesting to see my music being sort of taken on and, and used in that way and I'm tremendously 
lucky actually so somebody did actually ask me the other day a friend of mine for some advice about how they might sort of go about putting their music out there for film and tv and unfortunately my answer was I don't know how that works I don't know I've just been really super super lucky in that respect it was a demo that Matt Kirby and I guess James Lucas together wanted in the film how, how did a demo, because I'm thinking a demo should never get to that stage. And I, I quite agree. I didn't want them to use a demo <laughs> in the slightest. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think, to be honest, even using the word demo is, um, that's being generous. It was pretty much the first off. I thought of the song. It came in real quick. I wrote it. We, You know, I just recorded it on a mic really quickly, um, just as a sort of, some people call it a work tape, just a sketch of the song, of what the song should sound like. That's what they wanted. And I, I did. I pleaded with them to re-record it. To, you know, they were working in a beautiful sort of legendary studio. I pleaded, can I come and replay it? Can I re-sing it? But I think for them, um, and I think I actually did try to give them a different version of it, but they just refused. I think for them, that sort of really late night, whatever space I was in as I'd just written the song and recorded it, whatever came across, I think, in that version was what they'd really sort of committed to for the film um, and they weren't willing to budge on that, but just as well. <laughs> I think they were right. I was working in the studio with a friend and I had asked him to come and have a listen to that. It was the first song I'd written and he was a really good keys player, so I'd said, will you come in and have a listen? Can you think of anything that you'd like, maybe like organ or something you'd like to add to this song? And he said to me, oh, send me the song. And he was working in the studio with the film producers for Ridley Scott. And he just said to them, hey, you've got to hear this song that I just heard yesterday. And that's how it made it in, <laughs> which, you know, kind of beggars belief again is a bit of a strange way for things to work. And I think they had a track in place and they replaced it for Take the Stance. And so it was one of those things that you just think that's never going to happen, but I'm complimented that they're listening to it. So for it to go ahead was, you know, I think that was absolutely the first thing that made me think, oh, I think maybe I could be a songwriter. Maybe that's not just a daydream. <laughs> What's been one of the most educational experience you've had with a fellow musician? Let's think, I suppose, let's look at live. I think, you know, just thinking about this summer has been really interesting for me because I, as you said, I wrote the record and put it out sort of during the pandemic. So mm. touring at that stage was sort of off the cards. And I have toured, I've been really, really lucky to tour a lot of the world with different bands or with orchestras or I, I played in a lot of places. So I, I feel like I had that experience of that side of things. Coming back in my own right as the artist, put a completely different light on it. And it's what's been really fascinating for me now touring this summer, which started off in Kansas, has just been seeing other artists, I suppose, and how much, how quickly they can turn a room around. I think it's phenomenal, you know, and I think, I think people are very, very receptive at the moment. I mean, quite a lot of people came up to me at the last festival I played at a couple of weeks ago and said, this is the first live music I've seen. Or, you know, and then other people saying, oh, I've been listening to your record but this is the first chance I've had to come see. So there's a, a lot of that, but I think, you know, I saw a band the other day called, uh, they're from the UK, but they're a bluegrass band called Midnight Sky Racer. And I mean, the whole room was just 
completely electric when they were playing the other day. And then on the other side of things, there was a singer at that festival, Courtney Marie Andrews. And it wasn't that sort of, you know, leaping and jumping about thing. You know, she, she does, it's a much more sort of intimate set. But to watch a whole field of people completely kind of engaged. Um, so I've just been loving that. I mean, I, I would say right now, I've really just enjoyed being at festivals around other musicians and sort of contemporaries now as a fan myself I suppose but I've just loved people may not necessarily have heard of you they may not know your music so I think it's a really interesting way to see how people connect in that space um, as opposed to you know it, it, obviously if they've paid a ticket and they've come down to your gig they're there for you but I love a festival because I love to see a band that nobody's really heard of turn the whole place around and it's magical yeah are you also looking forward with your own material to have that intimate sort of gig where you can actually see and sense the reaction to the lyrical content? I can't wait. Um, I've been recently doing some warm-up gigs in theatres. I mean, everything feels very emotional at the moment because, as I say, it's sort of, there's a lot of, it feels like a first time a lot of the time for people. And that's been really a beautiful experience, you know, and often in those theatres, you have time to meet people and talk to them afterwards. And that's been a really interesting thing for me. Like, I mean, I love, I'm loving talking to you. It's interesting to hear how people are feeling about the record and people, you know, who've thought about the music, bought a ticket, made the effort to come down and see you. It's absolutely lovely. Yeah. And it's a privilege. It's a complete privilege. The artwork for Promises, and there's a stop motion of this as well, is done by Keely Wills. Can you talk to me about the decision to get this artiste on board for this album? Because it is an album that you should get the cover for and maybe get on vinyl one day. Oh, sure. Yeah, the vinyl is definitely on the way. Yeah, again, she was sort of just came into my orbit, I suppose. I just kept seeing these other people's records on social media and just thinking, what is like, this is beautiful. Eventually, I just thought a style of um, a music artwork style, but I hadn't realized it was just this one person. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, everything really looks pretty similar. And then I did my research, um, her company is Brainflower Designs. And I just thought it had a really cool, almost like, I don't know, like some of it's a bit like some of the tattoo art, like it's, it's beautiful and intricate has a little edge to it and a little bit some of it's quite eccentric so I just love what she did it's the first time I've worked with an artist so I gave her quite a bit of leeway um in terms of what she came up with and but she really put in things that you know after talking to her about the record I felt you know she has sort of you can really see the roots of the plants you know and we talked a lot about sort of the roots of song and of story and we put a hummingbird in which is just a little nod to Trinidad, where my mum is from, and the storm clouds sort of coming over. It really encapsulated the themes of that record. Yeah, I loved it. And, you know, it's one of those things you can't really imagine it. So you just find the person that you love and cross your fingers and hope for the best. But I was absolutely delighted. I think she's so talented. Carmen, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Notes today. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for making time for me. Carmen Phelan from Misty River. Latest album is Promises, with a new standalone single, The Long Run, also out. Online can be found at mistyrivermusic.com. 
Thanks very much to Carmen Phelan for being our feature guest this time. Next time, we'll catch up with Weedus from the archives from 2012. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Radio.